Welcome back to New World Next Week. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. Artificial intelligence calls for order in the courts. We got that story plus community-owned ISPs for the win. But first, massive GPS blackouts in the western U.S. during largest ever air war drill. On January 26th, the air war drill known as Red Flag officially kicked off at Nellis Air Force Base about 20 miles away from Las Vegas, as you might know. Base officials have warned residents of increased military aircraft activity. It's the largest red flag ever with the largest number of participants highlighting the balance of training efficiency with mission effectiveness. The drill involves a variety of attack, fighter, and bomber aircraft, as well as participants from the four main American military cults, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Foreign participants include Royal Australian Air Force and the Royal Air Force from the UK. The air war drill is the largest of its kind in the 42-year history as the United States prepares for a possible conflict on the Korean, Korean Peninsula. Just kind of sidebar mention that. Furthermore, the U.S. Air Force is going to blackout GPS over the sprawling Nevada test and training range. Flying.com reports the drills at the Nevada test and, tra and training range will cause rolling GPS blackouts for the vast portions of the western United States from January 26, so already now several days ago, all the way up through allegedly ostensibly February 18th. All GPS-equipped aircraft operating in the western United States should be prepared for possible navigation failure in the region. Training maneuvers will impact vast portions of the western U.S., including California, Nevada, Oregon, Wyoming, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, Montana, and New Mexico. The FAA en route air traffic control centers affected include Albuquerque, Denver, Los Angeles, Salt Lake, Oakland, and Seattle. You know, just maybe a couple of popular airports. Maybe the simplest way to put all this, like Kirk Nimmo said, might not want to fly or depend on GPS for travel over the next few weeks. If you live in the western U.S., we are expected to sacrifice during war. James? Yes. So what's the takeaway from this? What the government giveth, the government taketh away. And let's remember, when did GPS become a commercial, uh, commercially available technology? It was in the wake of KAL 007, that, uh, that craftily named um, spy craft that they flew out into uh, Soviet airspace at the height of the Cold War to test their ping their radars and all of that, and ended up getting shot down with Larry McDonald on board, the congressman who liked to talk about the New World Order. So uh, that's where GPS as a commercial technology comes from. It was, of course, bestowed on us by the glorious military because uh, we didn't want that type of incident to ever happen again, except for, you know, MH314 uh, or whatever the hell uh, the missing Malaysian Airlines uh, flights were, what was there. So, uh, yeah. So, th again, they give you a GPS, they take it away. Uh, I wouldn't be flying over the Western United States in the next couple of weeks if I were you, but hey, um, I guess uh, buyer beware, caveat emptor. Well, and I guess, you know, fortunately, I mean, my wife was just traveling for some family stuff. And again, those are pretty much all the places, all the states, anywhere we would go or to travel or to layover. Pretty much each and every one of those airports. So again, when you're hearing news stories about uh, weird plane crashes or even train wrecks or all these interesting events all going on seemingly day after day after day. James, I want to include just sort of in this first segment, I think it's just sort of a war games you know, breakdown, if you will. A couple of other headlines I want to kind of tie into this that I think sort of swirl around all these things. Tokyo holds first ever missile attack drills, as of course they had that very suspicious missile alert. 
what, mere hours after the very suspicious Hawaii nuclear missile freakout. And we've got a couple of updates on that scene. U.S. reveals Hawaii employee who sent false missile alerts thought actual attack was imminent. Now, some of the stories also say he was kind of a panicky guy and they've worked out with him over a decade of him actually believing these things were real. A drill gone real world. Hawaii officials resign over false missile alert. An employee who pushed the wrong button has been fired. So again, the story continues to change just like it does in the Las Vegas shooting situation. Irregularities call story behind massacre to stink to high heaven. As of course, now there's maybe additional suspects coming into the Las Vegas story, James. And if all that wasn't enough, immigration and customs enforcement agents to start tracking license plates all across America illegal immigrants or not. Yeah, they came for the illegals, but I didn't say anything because I wasn't illegal. And those, I think, James, just all those bits kind of, you know, all add up to some some scary stuff. To maybe put a media monarchy note on it, I, I mentioned on the show often, James, one of Steven Spielberg's very early films, the very kind of terrible 1941, it was his first kind of big box office flop. It's interesting because it takes place just after Pearl Harbor, where the entire West Coast of America all thought they were just going to be attacked any moment. And the whole film is basically the bumbling Keystone idiots of the community and the military all running around Keystone cop style thinking that, you know, war is breaking out. But again, they're essentially all their own worst enemies. That's maybe a, the brighter way to look at some of these situations. James, any thoughts on that? Have you ever seen that? I haven't, but I am familiar with the story, and it does seem particularly apt in this age. And perhaps par that's part of the point, is uh, whipping people up into panic over these non-incidents and non-threats so that they become real, they become actualized in real life because people make them real. Predictive programming from Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Our second story this week on New World Next Week, episode 305 for the 1st of February 2018, Artificial intelligence in the court when algorithms rule on jail time. This from the Associated Press. So, of course, there's lots to read and read between the lines. The centuries-old process of releasing defendants on bail, long the province of judicial discretion, is getting a major assist, courtesy of artificial intelligence. In late August, Hercules Shepard Jr. walked up to the stand in a Cleveland, Ohio courtroom dressed in an orange jumpsuit. Two nights earlier, a cop had arrested him at a traffic stop with a small bag of cocaine, and he was about to be arraigned. Judge Jimmy Jackson Jr. looked at Shepard, then down at a computer-generated score on the front of the 18-year-old's case file. Two out of six for likelihood of committing another crime, one out of six for likelihood of skipping court. Those scores mark Shepard as a prime candidate for pre-trial release with a low bail. We asked the court to take all that into consideration, said Shepard's public defender. Not long ago, Judge Jackson would have decided Shepard's near-term future based on a reading of court files and his own intuition. But in Cleveland and a growing number of other local and state courts, judges are now guided by computer algorithms before ruling whether criminal defendants can return to everyday life or remain locked up awaiting trial. Experts say the use of these risk assessments may be the biggest shift in courtroom decision-making since American judges began accepting social science and other 
expert evidence more than a century ago. James, we've talked about some of that expert evidence, like all the good bike mark stuff. And again, this headline shouldn't be read in a way that algorithms are deciding people's guilt or innocence. I'm sure that's just a, you know, a couple years down the road. This is just deciding on whether or not you're going to get an instant bail. Yes, but it's interesting that we have to give that caveat because that is kind of the, where people's minds tend to go when they hear this story about AI deciding things in a courtroom. It's immediately you start thinking about that. Oh, well, are they going to start deciding guilt and innocence? Are they, you know, and and again, uh, we've been through this before. This was the story of the year for 2017 for uh, New World Next Year 2018. If you remember that back then when I talked about the uh, the AI in the courtroom and deciding whether people are lying or not. Uh, again, we're just being conditioned bit by bit to accept all of these different algorithms are going to be dispensing different parts of the judicial system or what has been previously um, consigned to the judicial realm is going to be more and more uh, points and scores and uh, that are being tabulated by algorithms. And uh, I think it is part of the long-term introduction of that idea that eventually we're going to get to where the algorithms will decide your guilt or innocence. And hey, at some point, it'll be the algorithms will decide your future guilt or innocence. It'll be pre-crime at some point, right? And uh, we have to be, it's a long process of indoctrination to get people to go along with that. And I think this is just one of the many steps along that path. Yeah, it's almost like what's that? What's that movie? Minority Report by Steven Spielberg is the requisite, you know, mention of that. James, we talked about this, this whole milieu, if you will, back in December. How courts are putting brains, not people, on trial will include that flashback link, as well as a interesting related headline: a one by one tracking pixel used as evidence of treason against thirty thousand Turks. Tens of thousands sent to jail. This is, again, the new technocratic panopticon. And, of course, they're testing it out overseas before they, of course, wheel it around and can aim it against everyone back here in the homeland. Our third and final story, James, maybe a little bit of good news on this New World Next Week episode. As most of us have experienced firsthand, and you and I were talking about this a little bit before we started rolling, lack of Internet service provider competition routinely results in higher prices, slower speeds, even worse customer service and lots of broadband gaps. Needless to say, the threats posed by angry users building or supporting their own dot, dot, dot. And again, this is where we could sort of say angry people building their own blank is why the powers that shouldn't be are trying to stop that. And that's why ISPs have lobbied, uh, I mean, completely bought and wrote the laws in 21 states, banning towns and cities from pursuing the option of building their own community-owned internet service provider. There is a new study out of Harvard, actually, that details just what AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, and Charter Spectrum are afraid of everybody finding out. Study found that averaged over a four-year period, service offered by community ISPs tended to be significantly cheaper than broadband services made available from privately owned alternatives. In some areas, the researchers couldn't directly compare community-owned broadband with private service, either because the private ISP in question couldn't even offer up the FCC definition of broadband, which is 25 Mbps downstream, downstream rather in 3Ms up, or because the ISPs went to great lengths to hide all of this and hide the actual prices for what you're paying for. 23 out of 27 cases, the community option provided lower prices, and we will include the PDF of that full research, community-owned fiber networks, value leaders in America. James? 
Yes, well, let's just reflect on that little nugget that you dropped in there, which is, uh, if you ever want to know what the powers that shouldn't be are actually afraid of, look at what they make it illegal for you to do. And as, as you say, in 21 states, they've passed laws banning people from getting together and forming their own ISPs. Why is that? Of course, it is because that is the real threat to the monopolies of these uh, gigantic corporate behemoths that nobody likes. Um, but yeah, they're going to literally outlaw competition and stop people from uh, daring to compete with them. Because that is obviously where the real bread is buttered in this case. It, the, the people's power is, as always, in banding together and doing for themselves, which is exactly why that's the nightmare of the Comcasts and Verizons and others. And here is empirical proof that it is actually cheaper and better to do that than to uh, rely on these corporate behemoths and the granting of monopoly privileges by the government, which is exactly why I'm not holding my breath for those laws to change anytime soon, and why pirate internet, people banding together and doing it against the will of the government, oh no, is actually a good thing. And once you really establish that, there's no way they're going to put that uh, genie back in the bottle. So, uh, I, again, I think it's pretty straightforward. The solutions are always always come down to the same things. It's people banding together and taking power back into their own hands. And here's a prime shining example of that. James also included in the show notes, more than 750 communities have created their own internet networks. And that was submitted again using, as we get a lot of our stories, using hashtag New World Next Week. But you know where it comes from? Damn popular resistance website again. <laughs> we can't seem to get away from that one, but at least in this situation, they're not yelling at the capitalists and hurling coffee cups at Starbucks. They're documenting the ways, I think, that we're kind of learning our way forward. James, if I can mention one other maybe good news note here at the end, I didn't even put it in the show notes, but you and I took off last week from New World Next Week. That's why there was an episode last week. Because I wanted to go to a concert. There were some other reasons, but I wanted I wanted to go to a concert right here in town. It's a band that I've liked for a long time. I saw them, you know, as a teenager on 120 Minutes on MTV back in the early 90s, and I've been a fan ever since. And they're called Luna, L-U-N-A. And I've got some of their records, and it was at a club nearby here in town. I go and have a great time at the show, and I hang around afterwards as I'm apt to do because I like to get autographs where possible. And usually speaking cool-ass indie bands are the kind of bands that are going to come out afterwards and talk and hang out with the fans because they realize that that's where the bread is buttered. So I'm basically getting all the autographs from each individual member of Luna, and I'm finally talking to the last one I find, Sean Eden, and he's looking down and he and already see that my record's been signed and it had been personalized. I got him to sign it to James, and he kind of, he's like, wait, what's your name? I know you. Sean Eden of Luna is a fan of New World Next Week, and he recognized me from doing the work right here, James. I think that's another fantastic way that shows that, again, people who operate outside of the mainstream. And Luna, they were on a major label for a little bit of a run back in the 90s, but they are an independent band. All their new records are on their own label. They're their own thing. I, you know, again, that I, I feel like. Just and that's another uh, reason why there, we really should have swag. Um, I hate the idea of swag, but I think it is important for people to show what you are interested in, and you will be surprised how many people you find that have the same interests. Uh, that, actually, that's true. I had a Media Monarchy supporter just kind of out of the blue as a Christmas gift send me a one-off Media Monarchy hat. And again, people might ask you this, James, you know, oh, why don't you have, you know, why don't you have swag? Why don't you have gear? A 
a lot of my misgivings is I don't want to see my logo on a bunch of made in China garbage, essentially. That's one of the biggest reasons. But your point about spreading the word about what we're trying to do, I think, is is well taken. And if you like what we do out there, you can support and subscribe our work. We are both a decade plus in of non-commercial alternative media. James, I appreciate you. And while we're on the note of Luna and music, I would just like to issue an apology to Steve Carlisle of LunarTracks.com that I, uh, on my recent The Corbett Report is not on Facebook, he did a nice little remix of that, so I put a video up, and at the end it said LunarTracks.com, that is a misspelling, it is LunarTracks.com, so I'll put the correct, uh, the correct uh, link is in the show notes for that video, I'll put it in here as well. Sorry to Steve Carlisle for that mistake. To the moon with you, buddy. That wraps up New World Next Week, episode 335. James, again, I appreciate working with you, man. Thank you very much. Take care.